Our next reader is the music editor in TV News, where he's worked in different editorial roles since 2015. He's also written about Mike Jones and Mudvayne for Stereogum, about Lincoln Park for Billboard, and last year, he penned an REM series on Medium called 12 Months of Murmur. At the end of this month, he will complete Rite of Passage by contributing to the one-week, one-band blog, like dozens of great music writers before him. Everyone, please welcome Patrick Hoskin. Hello. Um, so I'm going to do this essay I'm working on. It's called Take This Joy Wherever You Go. It does not have a home yet, so uh, I'm just kind of just going to read it. When the tragically hips Gord Downey died in October 2017, my former editor Simon Vazek Levinson memorialized him in the New York Times, writing that as Americans, it's hard to quantify just how massive a figure Downey was in his home country of Canada. The place of honor that Mr. Downey occupies in Canada's national imagination, he wrote and continued, has no parallel in the United States. Imagine Bruce Springsteen, Bob Dylan, and Michael Stipe combined into one sensitive, oblique poet philosopher, and you're getting close. That was the quote. Dylan and Springsteen. For as long as I've been paying attention, it's been Dylan and Springsteen as America's de facto musical poet laureates. That's what raucous boomer lore has handed down anyway. And though we have to leave some room for their new incarnations, John Darnielle and Craig Finn, as the rules stipulate. Bob and Bruce have long been established as literary narrative juggernauts whose impact on culture transcends their music, their characters, their vessels onto which we project our own notions of romantic Americana. And I like the music both of those artists make very much. And I've seen Springsteen once in Buffalo at the last show that beloved E Street saxophonist Big Man Clarence Clemens played before his death in 2011. And I have plenty of friends who've witnessed the bizarre onstage deconstructionism that's been Dylan's primary hallmark in the 2010s, besides the occasional Left Turn covers album. They'll be two minutes into watching him play a particular song, they'll report to me, only to realize, oh, I guess this is the times they are changing? Bruce, meanwhile, still boasts a muscular three-hour full album concert set list and has intermittently since 2009. Maybe it's an age thing, but Springsteen and Dylan are not, to me, what they are to so many Americans. And that's totally fine. That's kind of the whole deal of generation-appropriate fandom, in fact. But Michael Stipe, the third figure singled out in Simon's comparative triptych. Yeah, now that's the dude I adore. And I realize my comment about an age thing doesn't make much sense given my Stipe adoration. But this is Michael Stipe. There's the American experience I know and cherish. And at the risk of making a sweeping statement prematurely, Michael Stipe is to me personally what Gord Downey was to the entirety of Canada. And this is why last October, coincidentally just a few days before Downey passed on, I asked Michael Stipe if he would immortalize that connection by writing his initials on my left forearm. And he obliged. But let's back up for a moment. Let's rewind to sometime in late 2016 when I began carrying a Sharpie around in my winter coat pocket. I did this for two reasons. One, you never really know when a writing instrument is going to come in handy. And Sharpies are bold and easy to write with, and frankly, they feel good in the hand. Sharpie, mark whatever you want. But a much more specific reason was that I had decided, likely while riding the subway one day, 
and listening to Life's Rich Pageant for the 192nd time, that if I ever saw Michael Stipe out in the wild here in New York, I would ask him to write his name on my arm, and then I would go get it tattooed. Now, this may seem rash, especially since I have zero tattoos. In fact, the only time I ever considered it was about three years ago. I contemplated something thoughtful and meaningful, like the flying hellfish logo from that one episode of The Simpsons. I got this in the Second World War II. Before realizing my heart wasn't in it. But if my arm read Michael Stipe in the man's own script, now that would be meaningful. My thought process was pretty simple. He lives here in New York. He's often found taking selfies at art installations and posting them to Instagram. So I decided the best way to increase the odds of a chance encounter would be to turn on the alerts for his page, the mobile alerts, and wait until we were generally in the same area, and then and only then would I approach. But what would I even say? I'm a fan, yes, but I'm also a journalist and a professional. And if someday REM get back together, which they won't, I need to be there on the front lines at Madison Square Garden for their three-week residency, reporting and synthesizing the scene, except for when they play Fall on Me, those three minutes are mine. So I'd have to say something evocative of my fandom, but also that lets me preserve some dignity before devolving totally into hero worship. Clearly, I never mastered the right words, but it didn't matter because I kind of forgot about those alerts on my phone once I realized they never yielded a discernible location, probably because the dude doesn't want to be hounded at all turns by wild fans. And I get that. I wouldn't want that either if I was in his position. So as a result, I continued my REM fandom in the typical fashion of listening to Monster on an old warped cassette I found about five years ago. Writing, the murmur, writing about the Murmur songs on my Medium page as if they weren't 35 years old and regularly texting my friend Nick, with whom I briefly played in R.E.M. tribute band in Rochester. And then one fateful night, Michael Stipe and I ended up at the same place at the same time, no Instagram alerts necessary. In retrospect, I probably should have seen it coming at least a little bit, because a coworker got invited to an immersive new listening party for Automatic for the People's 25th anniversary release, but she couldn't go because she had out-of-town plans, so she, she graciously forwarded the invite to me. And because that was the first R.E.M. album I ever really loved, I, of course, accepted. And on the scheduled night, I headed up to the Dolby Theater and screening room in Midtown Manhattan. It was basically a very small movie theater where the screen is almost an afterthought because it's the sound and the speakers that matter. You're in this three-dimensional box, and sounds are flying at you depending on where you're positioned. I remember just before they started the brief retrospective film that preceded the album, I saw R.E.M. bassist Mike Mills come in and sit down somewhere in the center, and my face turned completely red thinking about how he'd be hearing his own harmony vocals on Find the River from a, a prime spot. And he did! <laughs> a moment before the album kicked on, all the lights shut completely off, which was nice because no one could see my eyes welling up as the watery keyboards of New Orleans Instrumental Number no. 1 filled the pockets of the room like pool balls after a thunderous shot. It took nearly half the album for me to get used to hearing any kind of music this way, which is a little weird and a little unsettling because this experiment is downright cubist. You're hearing the song all at once, and yet simultaneously, you're hearing every individual piece, every instrument, as it fled from its prearranged position and fluttered around to a new location in the room. I can only hope that at least one person in the room had enjoyed an edible earlier in the evening before they sat down for the show. Although, I don't know, maybe Ignoreland would simply be too much in that condition. 
but I enjoyed it anyway. And when it was over and the lights came back up, I wiped the lingering moistness from my face. I reapplied my glasses and I decided I'd say hello to Mike Mills outside in the lobby area. It simply had to be done. But when I walked out, my plan changed completely, nearly automatically, at the sight of the figure standing in front of me, luminous in a short white jacket and holding a sparkling water carefully in one hand. It was Michael Stipe. He was holding court at a cozy cocktail table, graciously saying hello and enduring the stream of well-wishers who came to him in packs of three or four. My phone had died, you see, so I positioned myself nearby in a corner, watching and waiting for my chance, simultaneously fake texting on the useless brick in my hands. This very brick. Rob Sheffield was there too, and it was a weird, almost fizzy feeling to be double starstruck at the same time. Triple if you count Mike Mills, who'd gotten a drink at the other end of the long room. So I watched men in their 40s wearing blazers wait their turn, then approach Michael Stipe with posters, vinyl records, headshots, various REM ephemera. And because he too is a professional, Michael Stipe smiled and he signed them all. He posed for photos and he made pleasant conversation throughout. He wasn't overly warm the way celebrities can be after years of training and pure routine, but he had kind eyes and his beard was pretty in check, far shorter than he'd kept it in his freewheeling Allen Ginsberg and septum piercing days over the past few years. After about 15 minutes up against that wall, pressing individual buttons on a cold black screen, invisible buttons actually, because my phone was dead, I decided to go for it. I approached Michael Stipe, the man who sang Driver 8 in perfect circle, and these days, and you are the everything for fuck's sake. And I introduced myself. I thanked him. I said, I got into music and writing partly because of REM, which is true. But what I didn't say, and what's more accurate, is that I've stayed in music and writing because of R.E.M. too. They're just good. They keep me reaching. He politely listened to my spiel, nodding, giving audible confirmation at the appropriate points, and then a lull, a dreaded lull, with Michael Stipe in front of me. If my phone had, if my phone had any battery life left, I would have asked for a selfie and gotten the hell out of there. But instead, realizing time was running out, I withdrew a ballpoint Bic pen from my backpack, and I said pretty much this exactly. So I always said that if I ran into you, I'd ask you to write your initials on my arm, and then I'd get it tattooed. And if you wouldn't mind, and you can totally say no, but if you're not against it, would you do that? I changed full name to initials because in that moment, it felt impossible enough to be standing there with him that I didn't want to tempt fate with my greed. Same with swapping out a pen, or swapping in a pen for a Sharpie. And Michael Stipe, without hesitation looked directly into my eyes and replied, are you sure that's really what you want to do? <laughs> he wasn't trying to get out of doing this or stall for time. He, it was a genuine question. Tattoos are a big commitment, clearly. But I said yes, and he clarified, okay, my initials are weird though because they're JMS. And in my head, I'm like, hell yeah. <laughs> my left forearm is about to become a living John Michael Stipe trivia document. But the pen didn't work right away. He gave a few quick scribbles on a cocktail napkin, and then he went in for the kill. It only took about 10 seconds. He wanted to trace the letters carefully, but it obviously felt like an eternity. I could feel the hot eyes of everyone in the room staring, even though most people had fled with their autograph loop by this point. I think Rob Sheffield saw it, though, and that made me extra stoked during those 10 seconds. After, after, I looked down to discover a dainty J without a top on it, a misshapen M that looked more like a crude stick figure with ski poles, and a standard S. Those are pretty hard to mess up. It was perfect. 
And to make sure Michael Stipe didn't change his mind, lick his fingers, and rub the ink off my arm because he wanted to preserve the mystery of his actual first name, I thanked him and then immediately booked it out of there. For a moment, I considered getting Mike Mills to do the same, but I couldn't locate him. That's just as well. How much good fortune could one man fall into in a single evening? So now is the part where I'd end this story by dramatically rolling up my sleeve to proudly show off my JMS left forearm tattoo. But folks, I didn't go through with it. (laughs) I did keep a Band-Aid on it for a few days, though, just so I could preserve it for as long as possible. And I even took a picture once my phone life restored itself, thinking maybe I'd bring it into a parlor one day and tell them to recreate it. But the truth is, I'm just not a tattoo guy. And I know that. If I'm not going to get Michael Stipe's handwritten half-dollar size initials on my forearm in an easily coverable spot, I'm not going to get anything. And that's cool. On the top-tier REM song, These Days, Michael Stipe urgently instructs the listener to take this joy wherever you go, as Mike Mills backs him up on the harmony. There are a lot of ways to do that. A tattoo is one, but sometimes a good story will do the trick. Thanks. Attention Springwood, my name is Josh Krebs. And I'm Liz Richards. And we're the hosts of Bloody Date Night. So Josh and I have been dating for four years, and Josh loves horror movies, and I hate him. Yeah, so each episode we go through the horror movie franchise canon to watch an episode and then meet up and we discuss it together. And so far it's been going pretty well, right Liz? I think it's gone pretty well so far. Yeah, each episode I try to see how far I can push Liz to watch a really good horror movie until she basically leaves me and it hasn't worked yet. Not yet. And it's awesome because you're the Tatum to my Sydney. You're sweet. And here's a clip from one of our recent episodes. Hello, I'm Exposition. Hey, let me, let me tell you what just happened. There's a break-in at this costume store. Somebody stole some ropes, some knives. Somebody stole a mask. They stole $250. They scared a cat. They took two boas. They took two boas. Two feather boas, one uh, set of angel wings. It's one of those goddamn... They're probably having a burlesque. <laughs> probably doing a burlesque show later. I don't know. Oh, Haddonfield. What isn't happening? Haddonfield's first burlesque <laughs> club. That'd be amazing. I would love that. Um, the Lacey Pumpkin. The la- Ooh. This has been an Atlantic Transmission production. Hey!